Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey learned security coding from a cereal box knock writer. <laughs> what cereal? <laughs> like Cracker Jacks? That's yeah, yeah, actually, you you stumbled on one that actually, in a way, fits. Everyone out there <laughs> probably knows that Cracker Jack. Wait, it was Cracker Jacks, right? Where uh, what's his name that did OpenBSD found the first? No, Captain Crunch. Uh-huh. Captain Crunch was his alias, and he found the whistle that happened to be the exact right freaking clone to uh, get some operator generated calls. So you can learn cracking from the toys in the cereal box. There you go. Well, on today's episode, we are not learning that. Instead, we're going to cover a pretty interesting research article by a threat actor, not a threat actor, by a a researcher uh, looking into a car manufacturer. Sometimes it's gray, right? Sometimes you don't know. Sometimes they might fall on both sides. Who's the guy that wrote the malware, but was also speaking at DEF CON to good guys? Marcus. This one definitely feels like a, a, a white hat. A good guy. This uh, is a good that, guy. Though, we'll cover a recent report by the FBI and CISA on the Androx Ghost malware threat. And then we will additionally cover some research uh, by Security Scorecard on Volt Typhoon compromising SMB routers. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, storm our way in. Oh. Which which tropical uh, regional storm is this one going to be? Keep listening to find out. If you can even remember Microsoft Storm's name in the first place. Slowly sticking. So let's start this week with the first story. Uh, I saw a report. I think it was, was it you, Corey, that shared it? Someone on our team shared this in our... Uh, our team thread at some point. I actually this week, think it was but Josh, it, but yeah, I remember seeing it too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, security core card, uh, scorecard, which if you're not familiar with them, they're similar to like, I'd put them in the same categories like census or Shodan, where they will go scan websites, primarily web applications um, in order to effectively give them a grade on security best practices. Well, they published a report last week describing their analysis of activity from Volt Typhoon targeting SMB routing devices. Pause real quick, Corey. Pop quiz time. Uh, Typhoon, what does that mean in Microsoft's nomenclature? That is China. I think last week you gave me uh, another T-Storm Tempest, maybe, that is actually financial, but I'm pretty sure Typhoon is China. You are correct. This means it is a suspected Chinese at least based, not necessarily sponsored, but based in China, threat actor. Um, But the big headline from the report was they found 30% of Cisco R320 or R325 devices may have been compromised by Volt Typhoon uh, over this 37-day period. Uh, If you're not familiar with the Cisco 320 or 325, they are currently end-of-life small office, home office routers uh, made by Cisco. And through their analysis, they uncovered a few things, including a brand new web shell on these routers um, and some other network edge devices targeted by the group, too. Um, They found uh, additional telemetry on command and control infrastructure by Volt Typhoon and a few details on like how potentially they got a hold of these devices. Um, So I guess they start their report by describing how they began their analysis or some of the data they looked through. It sounds like they've got a partnership with potentially, I'm going to assume like internet service providers or backbone providers, something along that lines, because they 
point to what they call partner net flow data uh, that they analyzed. If you're not familiar with net flow data, it's basically records of network traffic, typically includes source and destination, port protocol, volume of data, uh, timing Essentially of data. network logs without too much detail, enough detail to know directions and, and IPs, but not like all, not too much about the packet contents. Yep. And they found using this partner NetFlow data, around 30% of the exposed device population, which the total was a bit over 1,100 devices, uh, of that 325 or 30% were communicating with known command and control IP addresses for over a 30-day period. Um, they found uh, additional devices via their network scans too uh, by looking at metadata and the response from these devices. Um, this is actually how they determined the most likely avenue that the threat actors got in. There was a 2029 uh, CVE uh, known vulnerability in these Cisco devices that um, was at least identified in January 2019. By then, these devices were still end of life or already end of life. And so Cisco has not patched and will not patch them, understandably. Um, but using a report from Lumen, uh, which their threat lab is called Black Lotus Labs. That's pretty dang cool. Pausing there for a second. I like that name. Um, so Lumen's Black Lotus Labs also provided some information about command and control and IOCs associated with it. Um, but they noticed during their analysis of some of these devices that the HTML returned from like the management web interface of these uh, compromised systems included information like references to a known IP address from one of uh, Black Lotus's um, reports, references to a web shell called fy.sh, um, and uh, a few other potential IOCs in there as well, too. And when they you look at the actual HTML response, it was pretty interesting. Um, you can see in the response, it's like the, the web form used to log in to the, the web UI of these devices. And in there, the attackers have injected a hidden input field um, for, I think, the language or something like that, uh, where if the presumably if the administrator or someone else attempts to log in, that hidden field, which includes a wget command to go download the web shell and execute it, that gets executed on the host. Uh, pretty interesting. Um, so the report also goes into detail about command and control proxying infrastructure that Volt Typhoon set up using these compromised devices. Um, but the main thing is, all of these at the time in 2019, when that vulnerability was discovered, were already end of life. And now we're, what, five years later in January 2024, and they're still not only on the internet, but accessible from the internet, management interfaces exposed. And now 30% of them have been compromised by a foreign threat actor. I My initial reaction is, man, that's insane. But then I somewhat understand in that you have to consider like the target audience Consumer. supporting these. Yeah. Yeah. Consumer. I think in like, businesses when we're buying routers and firewalls, as but for professional purposes, uh, uh, I, I'm saying this knowing some IT people forget to update firmware, but for the most part, we pay attention to the lifespan of the hardware from the manufacturer. We know that updates, even if you're not a security conscious person, are important to the functionality of that routing device. So you pay attention to things like when end of life is for a Cisco router that you're using for a business purpose. And most people think firewalls and hardware devices 
some people want to extend their life, but really three to five years tends to be the lifespan of hardware from hardware manufacturers. Uh, they are argue, of course, you know, to keep speeds and feeds going at the right thing, you really want to keep it up to date. But usually their end of life comes right around the end of five years. But your point is, these are people that go to Best Buy, buy a router, put it in their house and forget about it forever. Like uh, my, my dad, if the router's working, one, he doesn't even think about the fact that you have to update the router most likely. And two, if he's frugal and that thing is still running eight years long, even though it has long been out of support and he could have a much faster Wi-Fi network if he upgraded to the new one or or more throughput on whatever services he has, it, it's just not a thought that crosses a normal person's mind. So I think you're right from us professionals. It's kind of crazy that you have these Soho devices that are way end of life. But I feel like, unfortunately, it's, I mean, for the consumers out there, this is something you should consider. It does suck having to update something when it works good enough for you. But the longer you leave things exposed with no software updates, the more risky it will get. And I think it also, that's a reason why the management interfaces for these were exposed to the internet. It's probably not technical folks, certainly not security folks setting them up. And to them, it may seem like a you know ease of use feature of oh now I can log into management from my house instead of when my I'm home. at the, you know yeah, the yeah. dental office or whatever. Um, yeah, exactly. So it, it makes sense how it ended up in that state, but I mean, what is the the cure to this? Like, I guess not trying to rely on deploying your own IT infrastructure as a small business, and instead using a service provider to at least help get you rolling. I think it depends on if you're the small business or the home user, but either way, the first step is awareness. I mean, in the case that you're a small business and you just don't have security or you're a consumer, the problem you're pointing out is you're, you're just ignorant to the problems that can happen. Ignorant isn't saying you're dumb. It's just you don't know things that aren't in your field. So if you're going to try to do it yourself, you, you better stop being ignorant about security and, and learn some of these things because it's basic 101. But I for, for the actual small business that really just wants to run the dental office, I couldn't agree with you more, Mark. If you find that trusted partner, a MSP or MSSP that can just manage it for you, that's what they're paid to do. That's They, they know this kind of thing and they will, part of their service is usually probably not even charging you for hardware, charging you a monthly fee for their service. And then the back end, they will keep the hardware up to date so that they know that they don't have vulnerabilities in their infrastructure. Yep. Either way, if you do happen to still have one of these devices under your control for some reason, and you're listening to this podcast, now is probably the time to replace that with something that is currently supported and updatable. Um, moving on to the second story, uh, so also last week, uh, the FBI and CISA uh, released a joint advisory detailing known IOCs and tactics, techniques, and procedures associated with the threat actors deploying the Androx Ghost malware. And before we dive into this, uh, so Corey, we maintain a, a honey net to try and identify different threat actor activity, primarily targeting like our own products, but also just you know simple exposed web services as well too. And just anecdotally, uh, Androx as a, a threat actor or a type of malware being attempted to be delivered was one of the highest volume uh, types of attacks that I saw in our honey net over the past like six months or so. 
it genuinely felt like anytime I saw what was potentially interesting activity, it was in some way associated with Androx Ghost. So it was interesting seeing CIS and the FBI like agree that they're a big enough threat to publish this advisory of all the IOCs and everything. Um, but so I'm trying to work in the background, know, but you go, you keep going. Uh, sure. I think it's pretty cool that just for folks that don't know, I'm sure most of them do, but a honey net obviously is we run it for research purposes, specifically to find new threats like this. So I think it's pretty cool uh, that, that our honey net found it. I'm also in the background, <laughs> hopefully I'll have something for you soon. Uh, I haven't done the pre-research to see if there's anything uh, risky here, but just to show something Mark shared with me this morning, if you're a YouTube listener, you can kind of see without me sharing the, oops, the packet information, some of the detail that that was us seeing Androx. So uh, anyways, if you're a security expert and you kind of want to have early understanding of things, even before FBI tells you about it, it's running a HoneyNet is a great way if you have the time to analyze the data there to find new stuff. And I think it's pretty yep. cool, Mark, that your HoneyNet caught this. Yeah. So anyways, going into the report, um, they describe Androx Ghost malware um, as basically a, a method of establishing a botnet for victim identification and exploitation on like target networks. And it's primarily a Python-based malware that's used to target .env files, so environment files, which may contain sensitive information like credentials for AWS, Microsoft 365, SendGrid, and Twilio. Uh, if you're not if we familiar... pause for a second, uh, .n files are maybe like, for instance, what a Docker uses to store. Like if you have a Docker and you're spinning up Docker containers and virtual environment, the .n environment file will have all that information on how to spin it up. And to your point, the most important parts that are often in these files are private public key pairs used to 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 do some of this stuff so it's that important token yep. and credential type information that is the big deal in those files exactly um, they've also found the malware targeting apis and smtp servers and deploying web shells too uh, they said it commonly they observe it exploiting cve 2017-9841 uh, which is a vulnerability and PHP servers that are using PHP unit, which is a unit, unit testing framework for PHP. This actually matches up exactly with what we've seen in the HoneyNet too. Uh, the overwhelming majority of the traffic that I see are targeting various PHP files that are non-existent on our honeypots, but um, at least what they're trying to, to hit at. Um, it typically will send a post request to a, spe a specific utility script in PHP unit uh, that executes PHP code that it receives. Um, after identifying a web app, it'll also try and look for root-level.env files, those M files, uh, to see if it's exposed and if it contains credentials. If so, it tries to do a GET request to the root URI.env to try and access that data. <clears throat> um, alternatively, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, it sends a post request variable uh, named 0x and then in brackets something, some sort of data uh, to the web server looking for ones that are in debug mode. In our HoneyNet, we typically see 0x and then the word Androx Ghost in uh, the brackets uh, as that material. Um, and it also tries to launch path traversal attacks against Apache web server versions, specifically on 2.4.49 and 2.4.50. 
So throughout and this I report, assume things like the path traversal is is to get to that that dot end file. Sometimes you know, you, exactly. your typical web guest should never be able to get to that file, but path traversal is the kind of thing that allows for it. I will say we'll probably get to this next, but as Mark mentions things like the specific post request or the specific get requests. Uh, obviously, from a security standpoint, these are great because they're indicators of compromise. So once you know the common files or URL paths in PHP used for certain vulnerabilities and things, you can look for all of this, this these specific posts or gets as part of your detecting this as an indicator of compromise. Yep. Um, so yeah, the whole purpose of this report from CISA and the FBI is to share indicators of compromise and indicators of attack. They point to a few specific get or post requests to things like a script called eval-stdin.php. If you're not a Linux administrator, um, stdin standard input is basically how you can interact with the Linux shell. The script, you can probably guess off the file name, will take input and evaluate it, meaning execute it on the server. Uh, they also point to get or post requests to that .n file post requests with certain strings like 0x equals androx ghost or immutable um, multi-dict 0x equals androx ghost. And then literally five other pages of URIs and IP addresses and request body examples that are associated with this malware and its delivery mechanisms. Um, when it comes to the mitigation recommendations they gave, uh, first off, update all servers and software, which I think is mitigation recommendation one on every single report that CISA ever so puts out. Especially if it has a very specific CV telling you what the malware is targeting. That means there's, I mean, I, I guess sometimes CVs exist before the patch, but by the time it's in a report, there's a patch for that CVE. So obviously, if you fix that, you're fixing the primary way these attackers are getting their botnet installed. Yep. And specifically, if you're on Apache servers 2.4.49 or .50, upgrade and get yourself off of those to avoid those path traversal vulnerabilities. Uh, they say verify your default configurations for URIs on your web server to make sure that they deny all requests unless there's a specific need. Basically, you can configure a web server like Apache or Nginx where when it receives a URI, so a request to the server with a path on the end of it, to either have a allow list of specific ones to handle or uh, allow all of them and attempt to find the file if it exists. Uh, obviously, the more secure option is to deny by default and only allow these specific paths that have files or resources that you want to grant access to. Uh, if you're using uh, Laravel for your PHP application development, make sure it's not in debug or testing mode, which is another way that uh, Androx Ghost can gain access to the system. They recommend removing all cloud credentials from .n files and revoking them if you found any indicators of compromise. Also, regularly reviewing credentials that you store in n files to proactively check if they've been compromised through some means. Scan your file system for unrecognized PHP files if you've got a web server. And then review all GET requests from your web server to other hosting sites, such as GitHub or Pastebin, uh, to potentially catch the malware infection calling out to go get the payload. All sound advice, but really boils down to just harm yeah. your web servers, I feel like. I, I agree. Yeah. Although I think you could go into a deeper discussion on whether or not to put secrets in environment variables loaded from an ENV file. 
like there's some people that hard code secrets directly in their their code associated with web deployment and that's stupid obviously don't do that there's no pros there there are pros to using .env files both for ease of use for things like virtual deployment uh, and the fact that often the developers who are writing the code may not see the production secrets. It's only the people that manage the production servers with that, those ENV files should are, be the only ones that have access to them. But with additional work, you can have the same secrets you might have in those end files for Docker containers or whatever in a dedicated secret manager. Uh, the only con, uh, the, the, the benefit of having it in a secret manager is you have full auditing of the secrets. It only can be accessed through that. But the issue is you'd have to deploy additional technology to make things like cloud deployment as easy and frictionless as it is from an ENV file. I think there are technologies and plugins and tools that still allow you to use you know, dynamic spinning machines up and down or containers up and down in the cloud, even if some of these values are in a secret manager, it just takes more work to learn how to do that and have the right plugins, blah, blah, blah. But yep. although they don't say it, you do not have to put secrets in ENV files. There are, there are other ways that are technically more secured ways to do it, although they could be a little more time consuming to set up. And if you do, you know, store secrets and effectively text files on your system, like at least do some basic permissions management around them. There's really no reason that your web server would need access to some of these files if they're used with a different application. And you can just do basic Linux or even Windows file permissions to prevent read access from everything except for yeah. the owner of that file. So there are ways to protect Obviously, them. Obviously, the patching has to happen too, because uh, yep. if if there's a vulnerability that gets past the the user protection, that's another story. But but like you said, even a directory traversal, even if you had the permission, if you had the permissions of the file, even if there was a directory traversal, I assume it would happen for the the default account given to guest web users. Or even maybe the webs, maybe you uh, elevate to a privilege and a vulnerability as the web server itself. You still may have the permissions correct so that even that user can actually open that file, even if they got to the right directory, which is Mark's point. Yeah. Either way, a really interesting document from CISA. And again, I'm glad that they and the FBI keep pumping out these basically entire directories of IOCs associated with major threat actors out there. It's cool to see. Yeah, I got to say, no matter what you think about government and intelligence agencies, they're starting, I, I will admit, <laughs> when I do see CISA's posts, it's usually after I've seen some uh, big research security vendor already talk about it. <laughs> so they may not be the first, but I, I you got to give them credit for information sharing wherever they're getting the information from, even if it might be public in other places. They are they're consolidating it and doing a good job of spreading the information around, rather than just taking information from people, telling the government about things. They they're actually working on sharing it. So, kudos 100%. government. So moving on then Teach to the our Congress last... how to do something useful. CISA. <laughs> there it help. is. Uh, moving on to our last uh, story for today. So this is actually a pretty fun research article I saw posted on r slash Netsec on Reddit uh, by a researcher going as Eaton. Um, so he describes their research that started with uh, Aisher. Is that how you pronounce it? Aisher Motors, which is one of India's largest automakers. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my understanding is they make a lot of motorcycles and commercial vehicles in India, and they've got a partnership with a subsidiary of Toyota called Toyota Susho Insurance Broker India or TTIBI. Uh, they seem to have some partnership because TTIBI has a subdomain specific for Aisher on their website. And you'll, as you'll see a little bit later, a no reply mailbox dedicated to them as well, too. Um, so he describes how he started by analyzing their My Aisher Android app. And they found what seemed to be like a seemingly inconspicuous URL in an API interface uh, Java class within that app that looks like it was basically just a link to a premium calculator. So with car insurance, you know, you want to know how much you're going to be paying any given month. You can use this calculator, uh, plug in information about you and your vehicle to understand what your monthly premium might be. Uh, so while they were viewing the HTML source for this page, they found a JavaScript function called send email that takes in three parameters, uh, transcode, content, and two and then adds these to a template object with the fields subject to and content, which you might see where this is going. You can then send that object to a, it then sends that object to an API uh, with the URI endpoint uh, send email. And it does include an authorization header in there. Like you need a bearer token, presumably in order to send it. But basically it's filling out the that object to send an email and then firing it off to an API that presumably sends an email message. And the researcher originally assumed that, okay, well, I'd probably need to at least be logged in in order to have that authorization token in order to use this API. But they went ahead and tried it anyway, uh, sent that object to the endpoint, assuming they would get a 401 unauthorized response. And unfortunately, or I guess fortunately for them, the email actually sent and the web server returned a 500 error code, meaning something crapped out. And in the response for that error code, it spat out a whole bunch of like server debug logs as well too that included a base64 encoded password. Uh, there was actually Oopsie. the password yeah, for the uh, the no reply Aisher at uh, ttibi.co.in email mailbox. Um, so you know how when you get a message from like a big organization or like watchguard it comes from no reply at watchguard.com. Now for us, that isn't actually a mailbox. Like we don't, you can't receive mail on there. It just goes to nowhere. It's just a placeholder that we, not spoof, but just set as the the sender for messages from us that we don't expect a reply from. Well, in this case, it turns out it was an actual Microsoft 365 mailbox. And using those credentials, they were able to log in and view every single email that this mailbox had ever sent, which it's includes like twenty five gigs, right? Something like that. <laughs> Yeah, of email includes like all of the insurance policies that have ever been sent to customers, PII and all uh, account information, uh, MFA one time passwords and password reset emails sent to customer accounts. And they also found they could use these credentials to access um, TTIBI.co.in's uh, Microsoft cloud resources, like a corporate directory, SharePoint and Teams access as well. It's pretty insane the amount of like they didn't cause any damage but the the breadth of the impact of this already pretty bad idea javascript class that was included on this this calculator that the research feels even like something like, a hobbyist website person like if i i'm a a new youtuber that has a following of 400 people and i'm trying to set up a newsletter from an automated no reply it, it seems like something 
that hobbyist would do programming his first <laughs> interactive email website and bam it's 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 toyota though or a subsidiary of it's just kind of crazy how 101 this is yeah i mean everyone starts somewhere but this is obviously like uh, someone who has not considered any security ramifications of what exactly they're putting there on a client side code in javascript and the researcher yeah. even pointed this is out an like, open this... relay too, by the way, besides the huge loss yes. of data, it's just a spamming point if you wanted it to be. Yeah. Not a spamming, the researcher pointed uh, out uh, the specific uh, yeah. security issues. Like first off, the client side email sending mechanism, where even if like none of this other stuff existed, like if, maybe if it was not a actual mailbox, just a, an address they source it from, still being able to send arbitrary messages from that just by manipulating some JavaScript is a big no-no. Missing API authentication on that API to send emails was a pretty big no-no. Uh, the leaky API Also, it's on- weird that it was missing that API. It, it, it seemed like <laughs> a it, mistake like, more it? than a missing. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, weird. Uh, leaky API response, so returning all those error logs when it broke was a big no-no. Including no MFA required. Yeah, no MFA required for accessing any of these services with the credentials, big no-no. And then the email retention of storing all of those emails that had ever been sent to customers, including OTPs, password resets, and all that PII in this mailbox, a pretty dang big no-no as well, too. Um, and you know, just to round it out and put the cherry on top of the cake, they reported the flaw to TTIBI. Uh, and it took them quite a few months to even fix it. And now even five months later, they still have not even changed the credentials associated with this mailbox, though. The uh, the researcher was still able to log in using those old credentials and no MFA. So, And this is up until two days before. His proof was up until two days before we're recording this podcast. So that two days ago. Despite originally reporting it through uh, CERT India, in August of 2023. That's uh, Oopsie. not not great. <laughs> not great at all. Like if you're an organ, like first off, treating vulnerability reports like this is extremely important. Resetting credentials immediately after you know they've been compromised is equally important. And then maybe spending a you know couple hundred, couple grand to go hire someone to rewrite your APIs and JavaScript would probably be worth the investment versus all that leaked PII out there. Yikes. Uh, so I guess rounding out today's episode of what not to do if you are a web administrator, uh, make sure you know what you're doing before you start putting JavaScript out there that anyone can interact. So for business users, which is probably most of our users, I I think there's a supply chain story here because we're mentioning a Toyota and iShare Motors. iShare Motors is probably a big company. Toyota is even a bigger company and their small Indian insurance broker is, is the, the, the point is, when you have lots of subsidiaries, if you're someone like iShare Motors and you're working with a partner to do something as simple as a premium calculator, it doesn't matter what it is. You need to do some supply chain vendor validation, in this case of Toyota, Cho, I'm sorry, Chucho Insurance Broker India, to know if they're any good at security. I, I mean, this is part of a supply chain. iShare, part of this bad response may... Maybe in part, not 
I cheer directly, but them trying to figure out from this little partner. We don't know if the the partner subsidiary is like a little 10 person company, even though they have Toyota's name or if they're, they're big. But I, I think that when you get to more smaller and smaller regionalized little partners, um, you might run into issues. So when you're outsourcing things, do do some research on if they're a trustworthy source that actually cares about. I mean, not trustworthy in far as they're probably legit, but as far as do they have good security? Do they consider it when they're developing stuff for folks? Or uh, do they look like they're programming right out of high school uh, from reading uh, stuff they found on the web? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> trying to throw shade. I too write a... Uh, write web applications via the Stack Exchange outsourcing method. Uh, but that's the thing. At least you've read Stack Exchange, which at least talks about security connotation eventually. <laughs> exactly. Stack Exchange. And maybe I'm actually throwing too much shade at the web resources. Maybe it's the colleges teaching you how to do 101 coding, but not talking about security at all. Whereas Stack Exchange really gets into the details of web security on certain subjects. In fact, by the way, a lot of what you can learn about .env environment variables, you can find some interesting stack exchange discussions on whether to use them or not or how to use them. Yeah, either way, at least this is a bit of job security for us as security professionals as people continue making 101 mistakes all over the internet. Hooray. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Instagram at watchguard underscore technologies. Uh, we're also still technically on Twitter slash X slash whatever it is now, if it hasn't turned into a burning pile of rubbish. I'm XORO underscore Corey's at SecAdept. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week. One day I want to see you do a Mr. B smash and subscribe, smash and subscribe. <laughs> I don't think I've watched a single Mr. Beast video ever.